Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, Bible Room continues our series on the Bible and economic justice with Micah 6, 6-15, and 7, 1-6. Here, God brings a lawsuit against the people for treating each other unjustly. They cheat each other with false measures, they bribe judges and officials to render false judgments, they pervert justice to favor the wealthy and the powerful. So what can they do to set things right? Nothing but this, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. It sounded so simple when we used to sing it in youth group, but in fact Micah calls us to radical obedience to the Torah, creating a just world for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, for the most vulnerable among us. That is what the Lord requires of us. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a good day for talking about a little Micah. We're in week three of our summer series on economic justice in the Bible. Mm-hmm. We've made our way so far through Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Today we're in Micah. Next week we're moving on to some New Testament texts. I feel like summer, uh, it's, a good, uh, it's a good time to talk about economic justice. It's always a good time to talk about economic yeah. justice. Yeah. Micah's like pretty different genre-wise than uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Micah is very different genre-wise than Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You want to tell yeah. us a little bit about Micah? Let me tell you, I will tell you a little bit, and then I, I'm sure you're going to have things to add to this also. But in, in terms of, so Micah is a prophet, is one of the prophetic texts. He is from a town in Judah, so the southern kingdom of Judah. The text is set around the, the end of the 8th century, which mm-hmm. is close to the time that the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. Right. But Micah seems to be speaking to the people of Jerusalem. Yeah. Not to the people of Assyria. I think there's some debate about when it was composed, like if it was composed close to that time or if it was composed more around the time that the southern kingdom fell. But I feel like either way, it's at these moments where like things have kind of fallen apart and and it forces you to take a step back and look at what's happening or look at what went wrong or look at the systems that have failed you or, you know, it's it's kind of a, it's a crisis moment where a lot is called into question and, and Micah has a lot of questions. That's exactly right. I, I think that's so interesting and well said, Amy, that, you know, with, with biblical texts, mostly we struggle with exactly when they were written, whether the book was all written in one kind of yeah. time period or whether it's been added to down through history. Micah has all of those issues. Scholars talk about all of that stuff. You know, for me, if you read it canonically, it is exactly set in the 8th century. And you can read it that way productively. But as you're mm-hmm. saying, you can also read it as well. Clearly what's happening in this text is society seems to be falling apart. And Micah is trying to respond to that. 
through his lens of belief in God. And so you can read it in the 8th century BCE, or you can read it in the 5th century BCE, or you can mm-hmm. read it in the 21st century CE. I was going to say, you could read it last week, and exactly. it still makes <laughs> Exactly sense. right. That's exactly right. One of the things that's interesting to me about Micah, you know, the end of the 8th century is also the time of Isaiah, the prophet mm-hmm. we call mm-hmm. Isaiah ben Amos, who was writing at, right around the same period of time in the, in, in the late 8th century. But Isaiah, as you well know, was a court prophet. He was Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. He was part of the, you know, he was having audiences with the king. He was sort of an elite kind of prophet. He was an insider, kind of. Very much an insider. Yeah. Micah is from a little town southwest of Jerusalem. He thinks of himself as being one of the working folk. He's thinking more like an agrarian Mm. uh, laborer. And so he is coming from, at the same time, same circumstance as Isaiah, but he's coming at it from the perspective of the poor and the sort of the common folk, whereas Isaiah was coming at it with somebody who has access to the elites. So I just think that's interesting and the positioning of prophets, you know, in different places in society. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to read today Micah chapter 6, 6 to 15, and then chapter 7, 1 to 7. It places us right in the middle of the book. I think this text makes pretty good sense just as its own text. So I'm wondering if there's anything that you think we need to know about the text of Micah before we pick up. Before we jump in. You know, I will tell you, I I sat down to prepare for this and I started at verse six because that's, you know, where we said we were going to start. And then you pointed out just a moment ago that the verses one to five are kind of like starting in verse six, where we are is a response to what has happened in verses one to five. So earlier in this chapter, God has said sort of, here's the problem. Like I I brought you out of Egypt and y'all are being jerks. Yeah. (laughs) And then verse six is, is the response of the people, I guess, to... Now, okay, God has told us what the problem is. What are we going to say? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, we thought a little bit about different ways of delimiting our text units. This part in Micah 6, 6 to 8 is quite famous, as you will recognize. If you don't know that text already, you'll recognize it as soon as we read it, I imagine. And so I wanted to contextualize it. And we decided to contextualize it with chapter 7 instead of at the beginning of chapter 6. If you were somebody who's reading this or teaching this or preaching on this, you might consider whether you want to go back and read chapter six instead of, or add, yeah. or add it to. But you're exactly right about that. The language in the CEB, which I think is good language, is in verse two, the Lord has a lawsuit against his people. Mm. This is judicial language. And God is saying, look, y'all, we had a covenant. I yeah. did this thing for you. You said yeah. you were going to do these things for me, which are laid out in the Torah, in the book of mm-hmm. Deuteronomy and elsewhere. And y'all are not doing it. And so I I don't know. What am I going to do with you? I brought you up mm-hmm. out of the land of Egypt. Now you're turning away from me. Like, how, tell me, like, what are you doing, guys? Yeah. So it's not even just you you're being jerks. <laughs> yeah. It's like we agreed to, this is what we agreed to. And you're not doing it. Yeah. I redeemed you from the house of slavery in Egypt. I sent you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And now you said you were going to keep this covenant. And now what are you doing? Yeah. And so then... Micah then is going to give voice to the people, at least here at the beginning, either speaking for himself or I think he's giving voice to the people's question, like, how should we respond 
to God. So we'll pick up there then in Micah chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 6 to 8, and I'm in the Common English Bible. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. That last verse, Micah 6, 8, I don't know, in the mm-hmm. Christian world, that is a very, very famous verse, and there's all sorts of songs about it. And, yeah. you know, yes. like that is, is it also in yes. Jewish community? Yes. In the Jewish world, yes. It, this is like the the most commonly quoted phrase from prophetic literature, probably. Yeah, that's that's so, I mean, it's such a lovely one. So we'll get back to verse eight in a minute, but first we need to sort of think about what is like, what is the context of that verse, right? So in beginning in verse six, the prophet, I think giving voice to the people is sort of trying to figure out how, how are we going to respond to what God has just said? Like God had just filed a lawsuit against us. (laughs) Like now what are we going to do? And so what do you make of this list of ideas, right? I could do this or that. I could come with burned offerings. I could come with calves. Thoughts about those ideas? I mean, it's so interesting, even just the way you asked the question, because I, I think of it as like basically one idea, oh. <laughs> but an idea that sort of, uh, you know, like you could do sort of a smaller sacrifice or, a you know, the sacrifices sort of get bigger and bigger, but it's all built on this yeah. model that the way to respond to this accusation that you are not a just people, you're not keeping the covenant is is we need to offer sacrifice yeah of some kind and it's so funny because maybe because i already know where this is going but until i just looked at those two verses by themselves i didn't i guess i didn't realize that like it's not immediately clear that this is a terrible answer yeah <laughs> from the text but this is indeed a terrible answer yeah so can you say a little more about that like cuz that's an interesting like it's an interesting observation that this isn't immediately a terrible answer, even though the text is going to turn out to think it's so. So you're thinking like from the perspective of the sacrificial system, this is kind yeah, of what I one mean, would think? Even within the sacrificial system, you can't just sacrifice things to make up for whatever nonsense you've done. Yeah. Like you sacrifice things in addition to making right on whatever you've done wrong, you always have to make restitution. Yeah. You always have to make right on the sort of human to human level. So the idea then that this, you know, accusation is being leveled by God, but it is an accusation that has to do with how people are treating each other. So the idea that you can take the person to person out of that and only try to remedy this with sacrifice is wrongheaded. I understand what you're saying now. That's so interesting. And like the Christian parallel, like the non-sacrificial parallel would be asking for forgiveness for things you have done wrong while continuing to do things that are wrong. Yeah. Continuing to do, asking God for forgiveness, asking Jesus for forgiveness, but continuing to do what you're doing and not even really intending to do anything about that. Yeah. The, the, you were noticing that the, like the suggestions kind of escalate. So yeah. first it comes like, <laughs> here's an entirely burned offering. Like that's 
you know, that's like pretty that's good. Pretty good, significant. And then, then there's a thousand rams. And mine is in verse seven. The CEB is many torrents of oil. What is that mm-hmm. in the JPS? Is similar? But yeah, myriads of streams of oil. Yeah, it's like a river of olive oil. Yeah. <laughs> And then now we're into my firstborn child. Yeah. Like that escalated. Yeah, it escalated (laughs) and it escalated beyond the bounds of biblical sacrifice. So far beyond, yeah. Right, like it, yeah. This this is not an answer that, that other parts of the Torah would be down with either. So I think it's easy sometimes to see Micah and some other prophets as sort of arguing that the, the temple system is inherently wrong or like taking issue with Leviticus. It's not taking issue with that. It's taking issue with the abuse of that system or the misuse of that system or the partial application of that system in ways that are just convenient. Yeah. So the, so the sacrificial system is meant to sort of set the relationship with God right again after the behaviors that have been causing the problem have already been addressed. That's what you mean? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now I'm curious whether you think like, so this is Micah giving voice to somebody. Do you think he is contemplating whether these are in fact good ideas or do you think he's voicing, like trying to be, trying to make some sort of parody of things he actually hears? What do you think he's doing there? I assume it's a parody. Like, I I assume maybe he's actually heard these things, but I think especially given how it escalates to human sacrifice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a, I think it's a parody. Yeah. So the point seems to be like, there's nothing you can do. Like anything from a entirely burned offering to sacrificing your firstborn, no matter how extreme we go, in trying to set this thing right through the sacrificial system yeah. without doing anything else. Yeah. There is no, like, no matter how far you escalate it, you're never going to get to a right answer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then Micah says, look, he's already told you. Mm-hmm. Human one is, the CEB translates things related to Ben Adam or Bar Adam as human one. Is the JPS The JPS mortal? has, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds really funny out of context. Oh, man. But, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just trying to say, like, yeah, human one is actually a pretty good translation here. Like yeah, you, so. human being. He's already told you what is good. So it is not, Micah is not saying, I am here and now telling you what is good. Mm. It is, I have already told, God has already told you. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what, like, that's a reference to? That is such a great question, and I don't know if I do. You know, it's funny. In my translation, verse 8 is in quotes. And I oh. had a moment first where I was like, are they quoting something specifically from the Torah but I think um, I think it's supposed to say that this maybe this is I don't know who it's saying is talking. So I get I think that's my translation's way of saying someone else is talking. Like this is a conversation happening between this imagined Israelite criminal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Micah, I guess. That's actually really helpful, Amy, to think because I've been using the phrase 
Micah is giving voice to the people. But I actually, I like the way you just said that. I think that clarified a lot of things. Like we could imagine this as one of the people or, you know, his, his imaginary interlocutor has asked this mm. question, how should I approach the Lord? And then verse eight is Micah's response. Yeah. So Micah's not voicing verses six and seven as like his own idea. He's giving voice to someone else. So we could just imagine that he's in a conversation. I think that makes good sense. I think that's right. And then so here's Micah's response to that thing that's just been said by somebody in six and seven is, look, he already told you. Mm-hmm. I read that already told you as, I mean, you've got the Torah is what I is yeah. what I think he's saying. I, no, I think that's I think that's right. It's just there's not like it's this is not a direct quote from one place, but this is yeah. an attempt to summarize, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. That you know, sort of along those lines, do justice, yeah. love goodness, and walk. Yeah. So there's no mystery here. Like the Torah was given to you on Sinai. Like you have known for a long, long time how to set this thing right. You know, trying to imagine all these ways of around it, getting around it. Yeah. And I do think there's something to that, just human nature and, you know, my own nature is if there seems to be a way you can like make the problem go away on the back end without actually stopping to do, stopping doing the things that are making you money or making your life easy or whatever it is, you kind of want to get away with that. And Mm -hmm. here Micah is saying, look, you have no excuses here, right? You, You have seen this. I love the way you were describing that as a summary of the Torah. And we've talked about summary of the Torah as love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself in various contexts along Mm -hmm. the way. Here is, this is kind of a version of that. Yeah. But it's a different version of that. So Mm -hmm. in the CEB translation, do justice, embrace faithful love, Mm. walk humbly with your God. What is it? How does it read in the JPS? The JPS has do justice love goodness, and then walk modestly with your God, which really means the same thing as humbly, but I'm so used to hearing humbly that it's funny to hear modestly here. Can you talk a little bit about those three? Maybe we should just talk about these one at a time and just sort of see what you think it means. So the first one in the CEB, do justice. What do you think that looks like? I mean, I feel like that's, that's the heart of so much of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are setting up what justice looks like, you know, in, in some of the ways that we've spoken about concretely in this series and also many other ways. <laughs> like there's a lot of very specific examples of, of how to treat each other fairly and what happens when, you know, like what should the systems be that determine what's fair in a given situation? Yeah. Is it Mishpat in the Mishpat is the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Is the Hebrew, yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you like if you were gonna just describe Mishpat in a general sense? Do you have a working definition, illustration? Well, I don't think this is a great I don't think this is a great illustration, but what is coming to my mind again is this traditional differentiation of the types of laws that we receive in the Torah, one being Mishpatim and one being Chukim. And the mishpatim are the ones that like should make sense. Like there is a logic to them and you can usually, if you think enough about it, you can get some kind of reasoning. Like it, it, it makes sense 
if you're not thinking just about yourself, but about like how how can a society best run if you mm-hmm. really have the best interest of the society at heart, you can actually derive a lot of the mishpatim that way. Whereas yeah. the chukim are, you know, ritual stuff or, you know, you can't mix different types of fabric together in a garment. Why? You know, because you just can't. There's no, you know, there's, yeah. you're not going to derive that. I really love that, Amy. I appreciate your saying it that way so much because, you know, we had that conversation last week when we were talking about Leviticus 19. Yeah. And we could have had that conversation when we were talking about Deuteronomy 15. Yeah. And so, you know, I think oftentimes we think of justice, or at least I do, as this sort of like abstract principle, like, oh, it's just or, you know, it's a it's at the level of, of abstraction. And your definition is saying like, no, look, there are actual like identifiable concrete practices that you understand why they're there and maybe they're even important enough that they sort of transcend cultures. Like there is an mm-hmm. essence of what justice looks like in action. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about here. Do justice. Do the things I told you in Leviticus 19 and then Deuteronomy 15 and in all of these places. Would you want to add anything to that for justice? How do you think about justice? I mean... I think the way I think the way that you were interpreting it goes a long way. And you know, when I talk about like what is the community envisioned by God, the way that I tend to abstract it is creating a society in which even the most vulnerable people are able to not just exist, not just get by, but actually like thrive, have a have a meaningful mm-hmm. life. They are taken mm-hmm. care of. And the wealthiest people are living within their means in ways that create this possibility of everybody having enough. Yeah. Like that sort of, you know, when I picture like, well, what is, what does justice look like if you're doing it? It's that everybody is being treated fairly. Everybody has enough. Everybody is sharing what they have with people who are in need. We're resetting the debt structure. Like we're, we're taking care of each other. We're all in this thing together. And You know, I don't, I I like that there are specific rules in the Torah for how that gets done, but I think it's one of those things like you kind of know it when you see it. Yeah, right, right. The Torah gives you a lot of examples, Mm -hmm. but yes, you should be able to derive it. Yep. The second one here in the CEB, embrace faithful love. The word there, faithful love, is the Hebrew term chesed, which gets used kind of a lot in the Hebrew Bible. Do you have a sense of what? What's happening there? Chesed in my mind is like a sense of loving connection to other people. And so I would understand this as like intentionally leaning towards things that create that sense of mutual care and warmth. God is described as being full of chesed. And so we, we sort of emulate that. I don't know if I have examples from the Torah specifically of what chesed looks like, although it, it feels much more uh, um, emotive to me. I don't know mm. if that's right. I guess you can treat someone with warmth without feeling warmth, but I don't know. Anything you can do to really like feel a, feel a connection to the other people in your community. Yeah. That word chesed is translated in the NRSV. I'm, I'm not looking at the NRSV right now, so I'm not sure if it's translated that way exactly here. I think it's just kindness here. Yeah. Sometimes you read it as steadfast love and kindness. 
Yeah. And, and I really love that the word steadfast is included in there because mm-hmm. it's sort of this like, you know, you can trust it. It's, it's ongoing. It's sort mm. of like fidelity or something like I got your back. And that's what it means to like to have steadfast love and kindness for someone is I'm going to treat you well and I'm always going to do it and you don't have to worry about me. It is something that is just going to be there. I love that. You. I love that. Then we talked a little bit about this walking humbly. The Hebrew there is, the root is tsana, which mm-hmm. in the hifil, which it is here, can mean to be humble. It can also mean to be modest. And so I think our, our two translations are kind of getting at that idea. If you think about like walking humbly, walking modestly with God, you're not just walking with anybody, you're walking with God. What does that, like, what does that mean? That's a good, it's a good question. I mean... Okay, I'll I'll start with the basics, and then maybe you can you can layer on some more uh, color or complexity to it. But I mean, I think of it as part of it is you know walking with your God, meaning sort of you yeah. are in partnership with God. You yeah. are walking with God. It doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say follow God. It does, I mean, of course, there is a differential between God and humans, but there is a sense of like God needs you to do your part in order to create the world that God has in mind. And also don't get all high on yourself for like, don't, don't start thinking like I'm God's partner and I can change, you know, I don't want to do it that way. We're going to do it this other way. Like you're not that kind of partner. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So those, I don't know. I, I had never really thought about how those things fit together, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting little dance to do. You do have power, but not all the power. Yeah. I think that's really well said Mm -hmm. that it's uh, to me, it was exactly the, like, don't, don't get wrong in your head. Like who is God in this relationship? Yeah. Like stay in your lane, but there is a partnership with it. Like, I I love that you're walking along with God has given you a way of life. Like there is a path that is laid out for us. So we walk along that path with God. And that's, I mean, that's a kind of a big deal. That's pretty cool. But don't get confused about who is God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else we should say about that? We lingered over that for a little while because that's such mm-hmm. a famous passage. I'm, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Anything else we need um, to say about it? I think we covered it. I mean, I'm sure there's more we could say about it, but I don't have anything. So this passage gets less lovely <laughs> from here yeah. on. Um, lasted. Yeah. But this, so, but we have our kind of like Micah saying, like, here's the thing. It's right there. Do the Torah. And that looks like justice, kindness, humble walking. Mm -hmm. Then in verse nine, God is going to speak. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city. Wisdom appears when one fears your name. Here, tribe, and who appointed her? Are the treasures of wickedness still in the house of wickedness while the shorted basket is denounced? Can I approve wicked scales and a bag of false weights in a city whose wealthy are full of violence and whose inhabitants speak falsehoods with lying tongues in their mouths? So I have made you sick by striking you. I have struck you because of your sins. You devour, but you aren't satisfied. A gnawing emptiness is within you. You put something aside, but you don't keep it safe. That which you do try to keep safe, I will give to the sword. You sow, but you don't gather. You tread down olives, but you don't anoint with oil. You tread grapes, but you don't drink wine. Yeah, it got a little dark. It got, it got very dark, yeah. 
It seems to me like what's happening in this section is the first part is sort of saying, here's the behaviors that are currently going on among you. And then the second part is saying, and therefore here is the consequences of those things. Yeah, I think that's right. And I will just note that the beginning of my translation is quite different and is also really hard to understand. I think the Hebrew here is a little crazy town. I think so that's right. There are a lot of different ways to try to understand it. So so your your summary is helpful. Basically, God is speaking to the city and and saying, will I, God, overlook these things that you've done? And here are the things. Yeah. When you look at that list of things that are being done, that God is saying, like, how, how can I prove that? What do you notice going on? I mean, I just think it's so striking that of all the terrible sins that you could mention, it's not like you're killing each other in the streets and you're, you know, eating your babies and you're, it, it's not images of violence, which seems like the, the, the worst extreme you could imagine of sort of breaking the covenant. But it's this, like the foundation of trust on a very everyday level. Yes. Like you are looking for ways to stick it to each other. And and what can we really do as a people without any kind of foundational trust? So it it's like it become like you know shorting people on the AFA or having, you know, fraudulent weights in your yeah. sales so you can cheat someone out of a couple pennies. That becomes a symbol of like all forms of deception and selfishness. Even though it, the stakes in any individual situation seems like they're, it, they wouldn't be that high. Yeah. I love, you put such a fine point on that, Amy. And so I'm trying to think about what is that like? What's the parallel? But I think that's exactly right. It is about very, very small cheatings of the economic mm-hmm. system. My weight is slightly imbalanced so that you are paying mm-hmm. for more grain than you're actually getting or what have mm-hmm. you. And it's not, you're not going to, it's so small that you're not going to notice, right? If it, if right. I was charging you some crazy difference, you'd be like, wait a second. But it's small right, enough that you're right. never going to notice. Like robbing someone or you're doing something that's like obviously wrong. This mm-hmm. That's exactly right, Bobby. It's the stuff that like no one's going to notice. It's just this incremental chipping away at any sense of connection between people or mutual responsibility or common good. Yeah. Yeah. Now you have become a source of my wealth gathering by me not treating you fairly in ways that you don't notice. Yeah. And I mean, this is not in the text, but you could imagine that once I have gotten you used to buying grain from me at a certain imbalanced weight, then I could like shave a little more off my weight and then yeah. you wouldn't notice that either. And so over right. time I could shave off more and more and cheat you more and more and you would never know what was happening. Yeah. My head's going in all kinds of directions about ways that we have our society set up to do that to each other and sort of trap people in the sense of like inevitable, this, this thing that I have to pay, this thing that I have to do. Yeah. Payday lending is one of the clearest ones yeah. to me and the sort of people in a bad situation and you, charge them a interest rate that's reasonable enough that they yeah. will pay it, but, but it's entirely unfair to them. While you were speaking, 
about the way in which the person who was being cheated wouldn't even notice, they wouldn't realize they were being cheated. It made me think back to the text we read, I think, last week, maybe the week before, not to put a stumbling block before the blind. Yeah. Which I think yes. is, has a little bit of a different weight to it, but that I like thinking about that in conversation with this text, like that sense of, it's just like mean-spirited. Yeah. <laughs> It is mean-spirited and it's, you know, there is a sense and this is a very human thing about what can I get away with? Yes. And if I can get away with it, then 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 it must be okay. Yeah. And so you kind of push, push the boundaries and see, and if you can, if you're successful, you try a little bit more. And once people realize that other people are doing that. Oh, yeah. Then they start doing it because they're like, oh, if other people... I thought these were actually the rules, but if these are just the rules for suckers and no one's really doing it, then I might as well play this game too. And it's, yeah. yeah. As you're saying it that way, it's making me think about the tax code in the U.S. and all the Mm -hmm. ways in which if you know what you're doing, you can avoid an awful lot of taxes that people who don't know what they're doing can't avoid. And, you know, maybe you could hire somebody who could help you avoid them, but if you're poor, you can't hire somebody. But if you're poor, you can't, right. But then you think, well, it's the system. Like, that's the way the system is. And so I'm going to play within the system, which, I mean, of course. But that's, yeah. It is interesting to me that the text, you know, in verse 12, it says, a city whose wealthy are full of violence. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've shifted registers. Like, I don't think suddenly the wealthy are now out there, like, you know, as axe murderers or whatever. But the this is still that exact thing we were just talking about that appears like it's nothing. That is being described as violence. Is that the way that you read that? My translation has them full of lawlessness. Oh. Which is still bigger than uh, what's being described here. I'm pulling up the Hebrew. I don't know if you have a preference for how that verse is read. No, it looks like violence. Hamas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess my... Yeah, I don't... I don't know. I don't know how to read that relationship. Like, if it's... If it is saying something about once you lay this foundation, like everything, everything yeah. that God built to be put together is being torn apart. And so that is, yeah, that is the violence. Yeah. Or if there's anything else. You know, in the parallelism of the verse, it's full of violence, speaking falsehoods, lying tongues. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, you're exactly right. It has gone beyond the specific instance of false weights it, and to a more general sense that when you do not treat each other fairly and speak truth and things are not transparent and you are willing to hide things, like that is ultimately doing violence to each other. It's going to make everything fall apart. And we'll, we'll see how that, how that goes. Mm-hmm. Now, verse 13 then says, so, right? Uh, so <laughs> because of this, now mm-hmm. this. And then God says, I have... And then there's this series of curses. I have made you sick. I have struck you. And then these, if you read this trope in various places in the Hebrew Bible, but there's, you know, you devour, like you're eating a lot, but you're never going to be satisfied. And so you're always going to be craving. You're going to save, but it's going to get taken from you. You're going to sow, but not gather. What do you, like, how do you understand the relationship of these punishments, outcomes? I don't know how you want to talk about that to what, went before. Yeah. I mean, I guess I see it as 
you know, almost going back to that introductory section of this chapter that, that we described at the beginning, there was a covenant and there were rules and you were supposed to keep these rules and God was going to keep these other rules. And you have thrown that covenant out the window. And so now these other sort of rules that maybe we would call like the rules of the natural world or the, the, the cause and effect that we expect to happen. Like if you eat a lot, you're going to be full. If you have been sewing, you'll be, you know, like we expect these things to go together. And I feel like God is pulling back from those because we didn't keep our yeah part of the other one. Yeah. No, I think that's right. You know, one way of reading this, I mean, it is, so I'm going to do this to you. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a punishment from God, but also, I, you know, the way that I tend to read it is these are sort of natural outcomes of the things that you're doing. And mm-hmm. so God doesn't really have to like swoop in on a cloud and cause all this stuff to happen. But it's just like once you have started to violate the trust of the community, then you're starting like it's almost like it's not exactly like the the wrongs carry their own punishments. But there's there's a sort of once society becomes destabilized in this way, like it's all mm-hmm. coming apart, y'all. Mm-hmm. And you could read that as God sort of putting a finger, you know, on on it and making everything terrible. Or you can just read it as God sort of letting things happen or saying, look, I tried to tell you the way to live together in harmony, but you're not doing it. And so let me tell you where we're headed. Yeah. I struggle sometimes with passages in which God sort of says, I'm going to, I'm going to mess you up (laughs) because I'm like, you know, like you don't ever actually see that really. Like if you look around the world and see like, is God punishing us? Like there's no way to really know. Like what you see is society's coming apart. Yeah. And you can interpret that as God is punishing us for things we're doing, or you yeah. can interpret it as, well, things are just falling apart. Or you can try to read those two things together. The way God punishes is through letting things take their natural course. That's really helpful, Bobby. And, you know, I, I that had occurred to me with the first one, this idea that, like, your insatiable greed is met with insatiable hunger. Yeah. And that's, like, that's true. Like, yeah. once you turn your attention towards acquiring things. Yes there's no point at which you're going to suddenly stop wanting things. You yes. just, you know, it, it never ends. And I guess think, like I'm thinking about like, you'll have grapes, but no wine to drink. If we think of that more broadly in terms of the society, as opposed to the individual who has been treacherous, then yes, I think, I think that's, I think that's right because everyone's misusing resources and hoarding things. And so, Anything that would have created plenty is now tied up someone's offshore bank account. There's this illusion that, you know, if you think of the world as limited, scarce, Mm -hmm. and you think, okay, well, we can't all live together peaceably, so I need to get what's mine. Mm -hmm. There's a a sense that that's the way it ought to work among us, I think. But the biblical view seems to be, no, actually, it's, if, we, if you want to live in peace and prosperity, you need to make sure that everyone else is also living in peace and prosperity. Yeah. Because once there are haves and have-nots, eventually that system is going to implode on itself. People are going to become desperate. People are going to be, you're going to start fighting, like elites are going to start fighting other elites. Mm-hmm. Something, that system cannot sustain. So this thing that we tend to think 
which is if I want more, I need to collect more, mm-hmm. is in fact not the way it works. If you want to be prosperous, make sure everybody else is prosperous, and then that, that'll come to you too. Such a counterintuitive way of thinking in our culture. It, it is so counter to our culture. It is so counter to our culture. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Room Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on the Bible and economic justice. Amy and I are grateful to you for being a part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash podcast for details. And now, back to this week's special episode. Okay, so this sort of, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's, this is the hand gesture that goes with it. <laughs> okay, I will, I'll describe for those who can't see him. There's like, a, <laughs> like his hands start in the center, like his palms are up, but his fingers are together, and then they move out to the end. And they wiggle. And, they, and there's wiggling. And there's wiggling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is the gesture for unraveling. Ah, got mm-hmm. it. I just couldn't come up with the word. Good. Okay. Yeah. That's the universal. It's probably not. It is the, it is my, anyway. All right. <laughs> this unraveling of society continues on then in chapter seven. I'm going to read one to four. Mm-hmm. I'm doomed. I've become like one who, even after the summer fruit has been gathered, after the ripened fruits have been collected, has no cluster of grapes to eat, no ripe fig that I might desire. Faithful ones have perished from the land. There is no righteous one among humanity. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. They hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled at doing evil. Official and judge alike ask for a bribe. The powerful speak however they like. This is how they conspire. The good among them are like a briar. Those who do the right thing are like a thorny thicket. A day for your lookouts, your punishment has arrived. The confusion of the wicked is nearby. This is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is bad. This what do you bad. think has happened to the righteous? Faithful ones have perished. There is no righteous one among humanity. My first question about this text, which is a little strange because I don't usually think about historical setting first, but this reads to me like, like it's set after the Babylonian exile Hmm. when like some group of people from Jerusalem have been sent out and this is one of the remaining people. Yeah. But I would appreciate your help in expanding the way I'm thinking about this a little bit. Part of it, my translation is, is strange. Like it says, I am become like leavings of a fig harvest like gleanings when the vintage is over. Like, okay, so now you're a piece of fruit, but then the fruit starts eating, looking for other fruit to eat. It doesn't make any sense. I like your translation better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that this is another one of those sections where the Hebrew yes, is complicated. It is and challenging. We could probably spend some time translating, but we don't want to do that. We don't need of, to do that. No. everyone. No, I, I mean, I think what you're after is, is helpful, that – Something has happened the exile, if you read this text as later than the 8th century, and some people have been removed from the system. The, the people who are trying to do right are gone yeah. completely. Yeah. 
you know, that happens all the time. And this text could, I think, just as well be read toward the end of the 8th century after the Assyrians have come against and destroyed Samaria or mm-hmm. when Sennacherib comes against Hezekiah's kingdom and right around, you know, 700 mm-hmm. or 701 or somewhere in there. There are these times of like political turmoil in which people are, you know, they're choosing sides and they're, they're picking like, are we going to be loyal to Judah? Are we going to be loyal to Assyria? Are we going to rebel? What are we going to do? And these times of, of, you know, like where the world is already kind of in an upheaval, you've got to make some choices. And it seems to me like what's happened here is the, the people with power have sort of expelled, they have purged, to use language that you hear around our, our times, they have purged the people who are actually like have the interests of society mm-hmm. from their midst. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've gone into exile. Maybe they have simply been pushed out of their positions of power. Maybe another way of reading it is people who used to be righteous have sort of said, look, it, getting being righteous doesn't get you anywhere anymore. And so they have mm-hmm. flipped. Mm-hmm. Like, I think all of yeah. those ways of reading it, I think, are possible. And I think each of them has some, some relevance, some significance for how we think about this text. Yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. I, you know, just recently we were reading the text about leaving the gleanings in your field as an act of justice, right? So yeah, oh yeah. The, the fruit that's dropped or the fruit that you miss picking up the first time you go through, you don't go back and pick it up because the poor are going to need to go back and that's theirs. I don't think, I just am, I, maybe because we just read that text, I'm like, is there any resonance with that metaphor, with, with that law? in this metaphor or is this really just saying you're the unwanted stuff or the stuff that wasn't cared enough about to be seen by the owner of the field? Cause the gleanings aren't supposed to be thought of as like gross. Mm-hmm. You think it's just like Mike is an agricultural guy. And so that's just how he thinks about it. So the CEB, the, even the English is complicated here, but mm-hmm. I have become like one who has no cluster of grapes to eat or no, no ripe fig that I might desire. So even though everything has been gathered into the barn and everything has been collected, I'm still like one who has nothing to eat. That's the metaphor. Is that the same? Is that the same metaphor? You know, it might be that my translation is just so weird that that really might be the issue. I mean, I think we're in a I think we're in a land in which people are trying to make sense out of weird Hebrew, and so they Hebrew. make sense of it in different ways. Right. So, in your translation, in, in JPS, Micah actually is the cluster. I am become like leavings of a fig harvest, like gleanings when the vintage is over. And then, what's the is that is that all of verse one? No, and then it goes on. There is not a cluster to eat, not a ripe fig I could desire. That's where I was like, are you fruit or are you looking to eat? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how to problem? make that sense of yeah. that one. Yeah. Okay, maybe we just maybe we just say that's not a good translation. <laughs> yeah. Whatever the Hebrew meant, it couldn't have been that. I'm drawn when we're reading this to verse three, I think just because it resonates mm-hmm. for like all of history. <laughs> but, yeah, no um, kidding. 
People's hands are skilled at doing evil. Official and judge ask for a bribe. Powerful speak however they want. This is how they conspire. I mean, that's... Like, faith in the system is gone in Micah. Justice is being handed out. There is no consequence for just saying whatever you want to say. Everybody does things for money. That's how they're conspiring to enrich themselves. I don't really know what to say about that other than, like, this seems familiar to me. Yeah. In our own time and place. And this- I mean, I, I can remember a couple of moments in my own life where it suddenly became clear that the system that I thought was operative in the world, generally speaking, yeah, was either no longer operative or had never been operative. Yeah. Or, and it is terrifying. Yeah. And again, the description here is not like they're not describing assault and like physical attack yeah. and like this that kind of violence, but in a strange way, maybe because I live a sheltered life, honestly, in a strange way, this seems equally terrifying to me that like this system that is set up to make sure that we're all following the same system, you know, like the right. the system that's supposed to regulate the system is itself totally corrupt. Yeah. So it's like every person for themselves. Yeah. And it's all based in this, you can't trust what anybody says. That's right. And you can't trust the motivations for anything anybody does. Yes. And even if someone is doing things out of good motivations, you probably still wouldn't trust them because, nope, you don't trust anybody when you start to have a system where lots of people are doing things corruptly, then it's hard to sort out who is corrupt and who isn't corrupt. Yeah. For me, the last, the last several years have been like that, where I have had sort of belatedly being a middle-class white man as I am, realizing that the systems don't, they seem like they work less well than they did a while ago. Yeah. But a lot of people of color that I interact with are saying like, you finally understand. Right, now <laughs> right? you see it. Right. Like now it affects you, but this has been this way for a long, long time. And you just couldn't see it because you, it, right. it was fine for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Micah is sort of opening that up and saying, no, look, pay attention. This is, this is how it's working. So by the time we get down to verse five, then things have really become, I mean, it's just at the core of everything. So mm. verse five to the end, don't rely on a friend, put no trust in a companion Guard the doors of your mouth from she who lies in your embrace. Son disrespects father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The enemies of a man are those of his own household. But me, I will keep watch for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. My goodness. Now we're not talking about sort of abstract people out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a dystopian novel. Like, yeah. trust no friend. It, like, that sense of, like, profound aloneness yeah. is just so completely counter to, like, the chesed, the loving connection, the steadfastness yeah. that was intended. And it's, it's, um, it's terrifying and it's sad. Like who would want to who would want to live like this? Who would want to live in a world where you trust no one? Yeah. 
And yet, how many messages in our society are there today that we should trust no one? This is reminding me of like the Hitler youth in the 1930s where kids were turning their parents in, people were turning in their loved ones as this sort of Nazi movement came to the fore. And like that sort of fracturing of society so that what initially seems like kind of maybe distant corruption that may or may not affect me. Somebody's leaning, like they're shaving their weights a little bit and cheating people out of their money. And then that has become dishonesty in the way that we relate to each other. And then that has become taking bribes. And that has become just saying whatever we want to say. And now you can't trust anybody, even your kids or your spouse or your family. And it's that sort of thing of like, it seems so innocent, innocuous when it starts out. But look where it ends up. And I mean, I think history shows us that Mike is not wrong about that. Yeah. I don't know what to say about verse seven. It seems a little... Yeah. Simple? Idealistic? It, it, it is strange coming after this. Like a lot of effort has been put into portraying the, the complete unraveling of everything that the Torah has been trying to build. Yeah. It does, it it feels, um, it's kind of hard to read it as sincere. Like it's hard, you know, it's, oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) God will sort it all out. But there's got to be a better way to read it than that. Yeah. I will keep watch for the Lord. I will wait for the God of salvation. My God will hear me. Is that, like, can we read that as, like a hope that God is going to come write things again, like press the reset button and, and we'll go back to the other way is, is I think that's what I'm missing. Like the connection between God, you know, God will hear me. I'll wait for the God who saves me. Yeah. How, what does that saving look like? Yeah. Like, is that now you'll be taken out of this society and you can go live in a utopia or is that, you know, like I don't Yeah. I don't know what exactly Mike is picturing. No, I think you've said that asked that really nicely. And you know, it's just to remind us that this all started back in verse 13. So I have made you sick by striking you, God says. Mm. So you started out doing these things, and so I have allowed this thing is how I read it. I have let the natural mm-hmm. consequences of the thing that you started doing just play out. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. here is where we are. Mm-hmm. And so then the sense would be that if God were to step back in, God could sort it all out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then the no, question of like, helpful. what does that mean that God would step back in? And is it this sort of like magical moment where God says, kapoof, everything is yeah. fine, which to me then goes back to Micah 6, 8, which is like, here's what I require of you. Like, this is what, if you want to set things right, what I need are justice kindness, humility. And then that puts it back to back to us, right? If we want to be if we want to be in the kind of world that God created for us, intends for us, we've got to live with justice, kindness and humility. That's yeah. what the Lord requires. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I'm struggling with is because things have gone 
you know, because things got to a point where, you know, maybe God said like, okay, I'm going to let you do it your way and we'll see how you like it. (laughs) Yeah. I wish, (laughs) here's Amy's rewritten Bible. I wish it ended with this sort of like, I'm going to bend it back. Like I'm going to, I will look to the Lord and like live into the, you know, this, this teaching that I know we have. And instead it's, I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God who saves me. I guess it does get to a point where you're like, okay, we're going to need some divine intervention here, but I don't want to just let it. uh, I don't want this just to be like a call out for some outside force to save us from ourselves. Yeah, no, I was really hoping that that verb to wait was going to be the Hebrew kava, which also can mean to hope, because I think that's such a better a better word, but it isn't. Um, so it really is just about waiting. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is the perpetual problem that faces Judaism and Christianity, which is these texts identify the humanness that causes the disruption of society. And they tell us there's a better way. And God has already told you, oh human one, what it is. Mm -hmm. You just got to do it. And we prove over and over again that we can't do it. Yeah. The Christian answer to this problem, of course, is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Then Jesus comes and tells us how to do it. And then we still can't do it. And so we say, well, Jesus is going to come back (laughs) and set set it right at the end. And then various forms of Judaism have messianic expectation Mm -hmm. and Like there is some sense that there is going to be a setting right, but there is a perpetually deferred, you know, we we never quite have gotten there. And so what do we do in the meantime? I agree with you that I am not, like the verb wait is not the verb that I'm looking for there. Mm -hmm. The sense of I, I'm going to live justly, kindly, and humbly, and Whatever else happens, happens, but I'm going to, me and my family, we're going to live the way we're supposed to. Like, I want just something like that. Yeah. That's what I really want to see. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really, I, I really want to find something to do with weight. I'll, I'll, it, there's got to be something. I'll there's wait for God to, to provide that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the one, the thing that I do like about this ending is we've just gone through this long, long list of people you can't trust. And it starts from the people in charge and it ends with your spouse and your kids and your best friend. And then verse seven says, but you can trust the Lord. And so there is like, there is a fundamental trust Mm -hmm. at the center of everything. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we have, or many of us have in this text, failed to trust or at least like turned our back on that promise but it's still there yeah. like god is still there god is still trustworthy all of these things that god seeks from us in verse six are also characteristics of not maybe not the humble part but <laughs> god is the god of chesed and mishpat and justice and kindness and so mm-hmm. those things that are are there at, at the very core of everything that is but how that exactly translates into so what should i do when i wake up next tuesday it's not as clear yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about moments in my life that have felt most just totally disorienting. 
which I imagine what's being described here would feel that way. And I'm trying to think of waiting as sort of like this sacred pause, like the, okay, (laughs) I see this didn't work. Like sort of taking a moment and, and waiting for God in that way, but not necessarily waiting for God to swoop in and fix everything, but waiting for God to help you discern what what is yours to do? I don't know. That's probably a little bit of a reach, but I think there's value in in pausing to wait yeah. for God, but not indefinite, like passive kind of waiting. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense, Amy. And I also I don't want verse I don't want seven seven to land without six eight. Because six eight is a very popular verse in both Jewish and Christian traditions for a reason, mm-hmm. and that is because it is. I mean, it's a call to action. That verb there, by the way, that says "What does the Lord require from you?" is darash, which you know could be translated as "What does the Lord seek from you?" Mm-hmm. or "What does the Lord look for in you?" or something like that. So it's not exactly like here's a checklist of things you should do. Check, check, check. But like here's the kind of person that I'm hoping you will be. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the combination of I'm waiting and also as I wait, I have been told mm-hmm. this is the, these are the things that matter. Do justice, embrace faithful love, walk humbly with your God. Mm-hmm. I think if we take those two together, that, yeah. that goes a long way for me. Yeah. No, the, I love the that. combination that of waiting and there. doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That like there's a forward movement to that seeking, you know, there's like it draws you out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Amy, I feel like we've been sort of gesturing all along the way to contemporary parallels and how this might elucidate or complicate our own sense of our current situation. As you're reading this text and thinking about where it lands for you and your community, where do you come out? You know, I'll tell you where I where I sort of started. And then in my head, I've already started this sort of separate conversation that like where I came out is not is not enough. Yeah. So, so the natural place that I landed was when you are in a culture that has so many messages about not trusting people and legitimate reasons to not trust people because there is corruption and there is, you know, all the time we learn that the systems we thought were in play are not really in play and, you know, that there is all this corruption. How do we how do we live six, eight in the face of that? Like, how do we continue to try to shape the world in the way that, you know, Torah and the New Testament also envision? And, And so maybe the fact that it's hard for me to answer that question really is like, well, maybe I do need to wait for God or have some sacred pause to think about like, what exactly, what can that look like in this moment or in this situation. So uh, so that's sort of where I start. But then where I feel like I need to do more is like I'm thinking back to your your teachings and what other times we've been reading the prophetic texts that really whenever someone is being critiqued, you'd best think it's you. Yeah. You know, not that like, oh, I'm the lone good person trying to live amidst these monsters. Like, don't, that's not you. <laughs> yeah. In what way are you the monster? And I feel like I have to sit with that a little bit. Yeah. I feel like I have to, I mean, I don't, 
again, like, you know, sacred pause. Like, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but I also know it's true. Yeah. I'm really glad you didn't pipe in with telling me how I'm the monster. <laughs> <laughs> Although it might be helpful. I mean, I think that's right, Amy. I, I appreciate the way that you've said that and your vulnerability about it. And, you know, the way that I kind of like to think about it is this text is g- giving you a choice. You know, it is it is helping you and me diagnose the ways in which mm. we have been and are capable of being the monster. And it is showing us that there is actually an alternative that is possible, but you can't live the alternative until you recognize the ways in which you are complicit in the system mm-hmm. and you figure out ways of being just and kind and humble in the face of that. Mm-hmm. You got to do all of that. You don't, you're not condemned forever to be the monster, but the tendency among us, like this text says, there is nobody righteous left. And I think if you take that seriously, that does make you say like, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not being righteous. That's hard. That is hard. And, you know, one of the things that came up in the Bible room collaborative was, what are people going to do with this text? Like, like I want a message to stick in my pocket. That's like, okay, well, <laughs> so I hear this text, you know, a Bible worm or in my community or preach in my church, and I'm going to go home and do something different tomorrow. What's it going to be? Mm. And this text is not that, you know what I mean? Like this is, we're talking about big, deep, fundamental things. Yeah. And so where I love that you ended up was maybe there's waiting and it's not waiting just like, doo-dee-doo, you know, yeah, like I hope God's going to come in. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how to stick this in my pocket. And if I could stick it in my pocket, probably I'm not taking it very seriously. But so maybe what this text calls us to is a deep discernment as individual people and especially as communities of faith to say, in what ways are we complicit in, in this mm-hmm. world that Micah is describing and how can we live it alternatively? Yeah. And that's not something you're just going to wake up and do. That's something that's going to be a, an ongoing conversation. Yeah. You know, the way you just described, you know, what what people want, you know, in, in all faith communities, I think, is, you know, a little untidy message they can take home yeah. and have some little thing to change. That's exactly what's being critiqued in the beginning when people in a, with what shall I approach the Lord? Like, okay, what do I need to do? Yeah. I'll I'll do my couple things and then I'll That's be exactly right. I'll be that. good. I'll feel good. Yeah, Micah's not giving us that. He's not. And also in verse eight, he already told you. I know. God already know. told you. Like, yes. what are you wondering about? It's uh, right there. Yeah. Like I'm not saying this is simple, but I'm saying yeah. it is it is also not a mystery. Like there there is for us in the Torah, for Christians in Jesus' interpretation of the Torah which we'll talk about a little bit next week. It's like, it's there. Yeah. It's not easy, yeah. but it's there. Yeah. And it's not discreet. It's not like, here's the thing yeah. you do and you can check it off. Like it's yeah. woven into the fabric of every single thing, every dumb thing you do, everything. Yeah. yeah. This was reminding me of our conversation, whenever that was, about the Good Samaritan parable in Luke 10. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that Samar- the sorry the way that the legal expert asks that question of Jesus is what do I need to do to inherit eternal life and he asks it Amy Jill Levine says it's an I think it's an aorist participle that's like what do I need to do you know by lunch tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> that gets and Jesus says uh, do uh, love your love your neighbor love God love your neighbor do this and you will live 
And it's this sort of like this ongoing, like you got to do this every moment of every day mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. And I think that contrast that you're drawing out between like, okay, well, what's the, what's the one sacrifice I need to make? Check. Versus like, here's a way of life that you have been given. What yeah. you need to do is live that way of life. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. All right, yeah. Amy. Well, that was a hard text. <laughs> I know, but but a true one. So these are important conversations that we need to have. And, you know, there's only so much you can do on an hour-long podcast. But hopefully, if we take this text seriously in, in our communities, there is a conversation to be had. Yeah. For the next three weeks, we're going to transition out of the Hebrew Scriptures into the New Testament. And so next time, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4, which is Jesus's sermon in his home synagogue in Nazareth. And then in Luke 18, 18 to 30, which is the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Sounds like a plan, Stan. (laughs) All right, Amy. I'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagley. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll continue our series on the Bible and economic justice with Luke 4, 1-21 and 18, 18-30. The beginning of Jesus' ministry and the story of the rich young ruler. Until then, keep on digging.